everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. This is season three, episode 12. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector head for technology here at Hedgeye. With me today, as always, is Andrew Friedman, the sector head for communications, and Felix Wang, the sector head for China at Hedgeye. And this is our podcast where we share ideas on investing and we challenge each other. A lot of it is thematic. Some of it is macro. Some of it is also hosting special guests. And today we have a special guest. We have none other than Neil Howe, who is Hedgeye's managing director and sector head for demography. Neil was originally from California, born and raised, has his English literature degree from UC Berkeley, has a master's in philosophy from Yale University. He worked in Washington, D.C., in the po- in various policy centers as a public policy consultant, and then developed kind of a second career as an author and historian, a sociologist. He has written many books, nine books, the most famous of which is The Fourth Turning, which was published in 1997, the most recent of which is called Millennials in the Works Workplace in 2010. And of course, the latest edition is uh, a new book that is dropping in the next few weeks. And Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really feel uh, excited and happy and, and um, we have a lot of questions. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Ami, it's uh, great to be back. Um, great to um, to talk to you all again, and um, uh, the intersection of um, of sort of demography, social forces, and uh, technology is is always a fascinating one. And I, and I should say, history. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that it's sort of a little bit genius for Hedgeye, you know, which is a, a an investing oriented platform to have a demographer. Um, kind of a unique thing, but it makes perfect sense because while we are all chasing down the pace of quarters, or if we really have longevity in mind, we think about things on a two to five year basis, but the shifting of tectonic plates, in this case, demography drives so much change. And so in that, in light of that, I I wanted to kind of begin a little bit from a starting point of knowledge, so those of you who haven't followed Hedgeye and haven't followed Neil and are listening, I highly recommend getting uh, his book, The Fourth Turning. I highly recommend um, make, availing yourself uh, yourselves of Neil's um, products at Hedgeye, such as Demography Pro. And uh, if you're an institutional investor, there's uh, further you can go with that. Um, to even speak with Neil and meet with Neil from time to time. And I I highly, highly recommend that. And so I'm starting from a point of knowledge for all of our listeners. And one of the things that Neil introduces into our conversation as investors is the waves of generations as they lap each other and where you have bottlenecks where demand may uh, grow very fast and where you have pressure uh, where demand may slow. And one of the things that I've followed along, Neil, in terms of your work um, is if we look at, so if we look at the falling uh, birth rate, the organic natural birth rate of Western countries, including the United States to 
replacement rate and then for many of these countries uh, below replacement rate. Um, it seems to me like this is sort of like the one of the largest, most important investment themes to contend with over the next hundred years. And how is that going to affect the stock market? For example, in the United States, you have a generation that is retiring and they are going to be removing their wealth from uh, the markets, or, or maybe they will be removing their wealth from the markets. You have a generation that is retiring that is very, very large that has to sell, wants to sell their homes potentially or downsize. Um, you have limits, so maybe there's a limitation on the buying, upward buying pressure in housing. Uh, savings rates are very different across generations and they change as we go from the boomer generation to the Xers and, and, and further along. Um, and even further, when we think about uh, the competition for resources, um, can we, in the light of these demographic changes, should we start to think about the developed countries of this world competing for immigration? I know that's very different from the walls up approach that is that is prevalent in parts of Europe today and or, or increasingly in Europe and, and maybe in the United States as well. But are we going to be in a world at some point, do you think, where we'll be competing for immigration and what, how does that shape how we should be thinking about this world? So I really, I, I, my questions all come from that one core thing that you are so good at highlighting and so good at, 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 at sort of chasing down how all of this flows through and should flow through all of our models. And so maybe we could start there in terms of that, that sort of like that ongoing downward pressure in uh, replacement rate, birth cycle or, or uh, for developed nations? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a huge um, um, secular change. This is uh, the, you know, the great, uh, the, 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 the characteristic phases of demographic change over history. Uh, you know, and this was put out by a number of key demographers in the early 20th century is moving from phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And that's, you know, the first phase is sort of uh, traditional societies or high mortality, um, high fertility, right? A lot of people are born and people don't live very long. Um, and that that's a certain kind of equilibrium, right? <laughs> you got to have a stable, stable population that way. And then what happened, particularly in the West, uh, particularly in uh, really beginning with Europe, is uh, mortality began to fall. Now, it was a little, different, little different in some countries. In Britain during the uh, 18th century, uh, mortality began to fall and actually fertility began to rise as well. But all of these things began to happen. And what happened was, of course, is that, is that population began to grow. And at the very dawn of the Industrial Revolution, uh, and really it, uh, contemporaneous with it, interestingly enough, it did not follow uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, but it did sort of track higher living standards due to the commercial revolution, the agricultural revolution, higher living standards. And so mortality rates began coming down, uh, not because we knew a great deal about medicine or anything like that, but because people had better diets and there was a modicum of public health. Uh, people don't realize, actually, I think we're beginning to realize it when we see the futility of so much of our healthcare spending that um, spending on healthcare actually has little to do with health. <laughs> I think by now that we know uh, that the best things historically are better nutrition, more food, 
uh, and uh, and and public health measures, you know, just to keep everything um, uh, just just, you know, to 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 keep everything cleaner. Um, and this this unleashed a population um, uh, explosion. Right. And then pretty soon it was going on in China. It was going on in other places. So then by the late 19th century, the third stage happened, and that is fertility rates began to fall, right? And that began over time, particularly into the 20th century, began to moderate the otherwise would have been just an exponential growth in in population. But it still led to a very rapid growth in population. I think something like... uh, you know, f- uh, four fifths or five sixths of our current population in the world uh, was was as you know it w- was was all achieved within the last century or last century and a quarter. So that tremendous upsurge occurred, and it was still going strong as recently as the early post-war period in the early 1950s, even going into the 1960s. And that's, of course, when Paul Ehrlich and many people were writing books of the population bomb and, you know, the, just the, 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 uh, uh, the end of the world due to um, uh, uh, the population explosion, as it was known back then. And, the, you know, the horrors of the, of the future of India and, and China and all the developed countries, which still had uh, fertility rates of, of uh, five and six and seven children per woman, and in an age of, of declining death rates. I mean, this was leading to enormous, uh, enormously rapid growth in population. But then what happened is, to everyone's surprise, uh, and without the kind of uh, the, you know, Malthus's iron law of, of positive checks, right, which is mainly the one he, the only one you could rely on is famine and death. Uh, without that happening, and I must say, many people did predict that. Um, the Institute for the Future and many people writing about this in the in the 1970s were predicting this massive and absolutely unavoidable uh, 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 die off uh, that was going to occur in the West. It didn't occur, and instead, what began to happen was uh, all over the world, fertility rates began to fall and gradually population growth with a lag uh, began to slow. And today we are beginning to worry, many countries are beginning to worry about the opposite. We've really gone from uh, into, into the final stage, stage four, which is a low mortality, low fertility, right? Which can in theory lead to a stable population. But what has happened is some people are calling this stage five, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, low mortality, um, very low fertility, which means that you depopulate over time. And as we look around the world, we see that uh, the entire world now has a TFR. This is a total fertility rate, typically measured in terms of uh, uh, children born per woman per lifetime in any given year. It's sort of a very theoretical measure, but it's what demographers use to measure this. And right now it is it is 2.3 children per woman per year throughout the entire world, Ami. Um, uh, just barely above replacement rate, which is 2.1. Now, if you take away uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and a couple of countries in South Asia, it's under replacement over the entire world today. 
And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people, right, who came of age in the, the 60s, 70s, even 80s, thinking that, uh, you know, overpopulation was, was set in stone. Uh, the realization that even Latin America now is well below replacement rate, particularly the largest and, and more affluent countries. You're talking about uh, Brazil and Argentina and Chile and Mexico. These are all below replacement, meaning that absent new immigration, their, uh, their populations will ultimately decline. Um, all of Europe is way below replacement, right? I think the highest country in Europe now is 1.8. Uh, that's France, by the way. And it's an interest, if you're interested, we could talk about France. Very interesting country that's been obsessed by low fertility. And they've designed a very, very extensive set of pronatal policies to encourage people to have children. Uh, that's due to the fact that they've lost, uh, I don't know how many years, well, three, three pretty major wars with Germany, uh, at least lost or almost lost. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's focused them on that problem a lot longer than, than other countries. But my point is this, increasingly the world is beginning to look at this as a, as a real issue that requires actual policy initiatives. So the spread of pronatalism around the world, even in places like China, where you only go back 10 years and they were trying to do the opposite. Now, this is something I, every demographer, by the way, knows that China had a problem they kept the they they kept the pedal on the depopulation, uh, you know, the pedal of the metal on depopulation and the the one child policy long after all demographers saw for absolute certain that this was going to lead to catastrophe. They did it anyway, and I remember traveling to China and speaking with uh, with uh, the demographers there. They they all understood uh, this issue. And now, of course, China itself has woken up and they, they're frantically trying to uh, take the super tanker and put it into reverse. But we're entering a new era. And I think it's not just getting fertility higher, Ami. I think, and you know, we, there's so many places to go with this conversation, but it's looking at some of the long-term drivers of low, lower fertility, many of which are, are hard to control uh, these are things such as um, urbanization, education, increasing individualism, competitive economy, uh, and frankly, secularism. You know, one of the one of the reasons why people have kids is they want something that you know outlives them. You know, something that's sort of beyond themselves. And uh, the increasingly secular value framework of the world is is no doubt also having an impact. And should I even add here the, the very structure of the welfare state? We now almost all live in countries that uh, basically pay, pay <laughs> that basically pay you, uh, you know, subsidize your retirement and subsidize your health care. And for a lot of people, pay virtually all of your retirement uh, cost of living and your health care when you retire. So we've truly socialized the cost of growing old, but we leave the cost of raising children totally in the private sector. Isn't that interesting? Well, what kind of incentives package is that? And how does that change behavior? Well, I mean, you could talk about it in any way you want, but the fact remains is that if you have no children, you're a free rider. You know what I mean? 
Um, anyone who has children is raising kids who are going to support other retirees. Think about it. They're going to be paying those stiff, high FICA payroll taxes, right? But if you don't have any kids, you're still going to get the same benefit. So this is an interesting question. I think a lot of policymakers are beginning to wake up to it. We talk about sustainable policies in terms of you know, climate change or in terms of pollution, but we don't often talk about constructing sustainable welfare states, right? Uh, which may require a very different trade-off in terms of incentives uh, to, to have and raise children. Hi. Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. It's so true. And um, the uh, at least here in the United States, it seems like the we've been in this ongoing, uh, I guess, maybe sort of some people would say losing battle uh, for the one versus the zero, just the on off of wealth to welfare state or non-welfare state. But um, so it's interesting to think about uh, changing the incentives, changing the structure uh, entirely of the welfare state to something that can win. Um I have a few follow-ups from this, but I think I'll put those back into the queue because I do want to ask a technology-oriented question for the sector, which is that um, part one of the things when I think about this population explosion from the last century that is abating, um, a lot of the long-term push towards technology, uh, at least my my corner, my little corner view, you feel free to disagree, but was to create the means to scale and to uh, have better utilization of natural resources and such. So how, so when I think about the path forward, if we're talking about lower amounts of population, um, you know, what is the impact on kind of the technology market? And I'll add a sort of a corollary to that, which is now that we're approaching, you know, kind of a fourth turning within the context of the fourth turning or in the fourth turning, how, what, what are like, what are the innovation uh, impacts? What are the innovation outgrowths? Like what is the, what is the derivative for innovation? Is it something that will force people towards uh, uh, greater innovation, or is it the kind of thing that means a lot of innovation is going to be turned aside because there are bigger and more difficult questions and such? Um, and that's kind of a, that's kind of the question I have is as we relate uh, demography and the fourth turning specifically to technology. Um, I think that 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 scale um, on on a on a kind of national stage will become increasingly important in the era to come. Um, first of all, I think we are entering an era of, of sort of declining globalism and increasing awareness of sort of, um, you know, populist and national consciousness, right? I mean, you look around the world today, I don't think there should be any news to anybody. Um, everyone wants to make their country great again. 
I mean, right? You look at Mexico, look at Brazil, look at Iran, look at China, look at uh, look at the United States. I mean, they all got their own MAGA going on, right? Um, and and we see this uh, reversal of of globalism. Um, you know, as as you probably know, um, uh, you know, global trade and in, in goods and services reached its peak as a share of uh, global GDP with on the eve of the GFC, and it's been declining ever since. And I think in this new climate of increasing geopolitical tensions and sanctions and, and all the rest, and you can easily imagine it getting worse very quickly, right? Um, that everyone is onshoring and nearshoring, and, and we're seeing a reversal of the gains in the, in the global division of labor. Um, it was, it was back in the early 19th century that Ricardo used that example of, you know, England produces uh, cotton and Portugal produces wine, right? And my gosh, if one person just produced one thing and the other person produced another, and then they traded it, right? They would both come out ahead, right? I mean, that was sort of the paradigmatic example of the, the global gains of trade. Well, that is beginning to evaporate. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's one of the many headwinds we're facing as we move ahead right now. And I think that's a challenge to some extent for technology. I think it's less of a challenge for the United States than a challenge for a lot of the rest of the world. Certainly now uh, it's, it's obvious it's a very, uh, I think it's, 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 China is very aware that this is a challenge for them. Um, and and other, other countries are beginning to have to make choices, right? Or where their supply chains are and who they get to depend upon. This is changing the world of, of technology in, in a way that, that, that it's a bit limiting. I mean, uh, you, could, you could once be, uh, um, you know, if you're a small city state living in some vulnerable area, think of, think of Singapore or something, uh, you know, totally dependent on energy imports, totally dependent on all kinds of stuff, that did, the, the origin of which is thousand miles away. Well, in a more dangerous global environment, you know, uh, uh, how, how secure are you, right? You, you work in beautifully into the, into the global division of labor so long as it is global and effortless, right? But it's, it's, it becomes challenging. The United States, I think, has an advantage there. I mean, we are an enormous internal economy on our own, right? I do think that, though, that, and so that's limiting, but I do think within the, within the boundaries of each uh, country, uh, I think we're going to see more emphasis on choosing one winner um, and, 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 you know, regulating it or giving up the government imprimatur and, um, and, and, and letting it have its sway, right? Letting that scale up. Um, we talked about this. I remember Ami and I can't remember how long ago we, we talked about, um, well, I don't know. You, you asked me to talk about it, but I sort of, I took Carlotta Perez, who's a great, um, expert on technological change, um, probably more than anyone else in the world who, who wrote the famous book on technological revolutions and financial capital um, about the various phases of technological revolutions. And I suggested that according to her framework, uh, the, this latest um, digital age that, that sort of got started in the 70s and, and took off in the 80s and 90s 
is moving from eruption and frenzy toward her later two stages of synergy and maturity. And these would be a very different kind of era. And that the people who choose to go at their own, you know, kind of in a more libertarian way, you know, against regulation. I mean, you think of, think of um, you know, cryptocurrencies or something are, are getting their wings, wings clipped, right? Um, and, I, and I do think that the future will be at a, at a time where we want to control the pace of change and we want to harness it to, um, you know, collective purposes, that we're looking more into that synergy and maturity, which, which historically during those periods have been based much more on, okay, let's pick the best of these and let's really scale it up, right? Let's let's have everyone participate in this thing. Let's set standards. Let's go with one paradigm, and let's let's stop competing so much about it, right? This has profound implications, I think, for the structure of tech industry, uh, and 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 obviously for its. Uh, for the 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 le- traditional level of business dynamism we've associated with that industry. Okay, I I, I have follow ups, but I'm gonna um, as I mentioned, but I'm gonna sh- I think that's a good place for us to shift into China because we've touched on Chinese demography, we've ch- we've touched on technology and how that relates to China. I'll 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 over I'll speak over Felix and before I even allow Felix to jump to throw his question in. Um, you've, you've talked about how China has this mismatch or growing mismatch of, uh, of males to female ratio and how that is a a, a rising problem over the next, um, 15 years or so. It, is that the kind of thing that can destabilize China or is that the kind of thing that can drive a potential like war maybe? And then, on the technology front, um, if I look at uh, things from that lens in terms of China, and Felix and I have had a little bit of this conversation before, but maybe we can have it more here. Is is it to me the the, the it's impossible for the United States to totally design China out of the supply chain. I I, I just I'll stand on that. It's impossible um, in terms of hardware. And it's also somewhat impossible for China to design the United States totally out of their software. And the middle ground is that is the open source world. Uh, Open source software is more easily gettable, uh, but it's also uh, poses national risk to China because the United States can embed all kinds of things into that if they would like to. So how do you see this push this 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 battle uh, between these two geographic places, which with which also has a, t- a tension a, a tension rope between them on hardware versus versus software, um, uh, that and the the question about uh, the imbalance between uh, men and women in, in China, I guess, is a good way for us to lead into China, and then then Felix, Felix can take it. Well, you know. <laughs> You say something's impossible. It's impossible until you're faced with the possibility suddenly overnight that you're going to have to do it, right? Um, and uh, uh, then, 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 then it happens. And I knew, I do know that certainly in, in the national security community, they're definitely looking into that. What will happen? 
I mean, if you can imagine if uh, something erupts in the, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, in the Western Pacific um, that causes both countries to go into, um, you know, mobilization mode, um, we will have to get along without it. Then they will have to get along without it and we'll see what happens. Right. Um, And, 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 and things will adjust. Obviously, markets will adjust and, and, and governments will intervene. I, I just think that's just a fact, right? And you just have to wonder, well, okay, how's that going to happen? And uh, I'm sure that, uh, well, I know for a fact, because I've talked to some of them, that national security people are sort of saying, what, what things can we do now that will make that you know, forced transition much easier if it happens? Um, you're raising of the... Um, the, the uh, sex imbalance uh, rates is a really interesting one. And it's a, it's a byproduct, as you know, the, the one child policy, sort of the, this uh, uh, very long suppression of, of birth rates in China, um, uh, particularly back when China was, was a, quite a poor country still uh, um, back in the late seventies, uh, was an extraordinary policy because normally a China that, that that a country with China's demographics and its and its income standard would have had a much higher fertility rate. So this required a, a a large policy of compulsion, and it was kept into place for very long. Well, the the one child policy combined with another aspect of 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 uh, kind of the social habits of, of Han of Han culture historically is the patrilocal family, which means that uh, when uh, uh, people get married, the bride leaves their uh, leaves her 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 parents' family and go and spends her life with their the groom's family, right? I mean that's how it works. Uh, and in traditional China, going back you know before the modern era, that bride may not never see her family again, right? I mean, she basically helped the groom's family. She became a member of that system, and of course, the the uh, the, the the boys. If you had a boy, that would that would keep the family going. But if you had a girl, the girl was destined to you know sooner or later to be given away to some to some uh, some man's family. So that's the system they worked with, and if you combine. Now, historically, I, I, let me just say further that historically, um, uh, if you raise a, a, a girl to maturity in China, uh, there was a counterbalance of sorts. Okay, you say, well, okay, I've raised this girl to maturity. I've, I've spent all the labor and effort raising her, educating her, getting, you know, getting her marriageable, right? And, and she's going to leave me forever, what do I get? I mean, I hate to sound crass about it, right? But what do I get back, you know, on this on this investment? Well, there is another aspect of, and this is true of most patrilocal societies around the world, and that is the 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 compensation is is that the girl marries up socially, so that's always occurs, right? So, in other words, the compensation is is that the bride's family gets new relatives that are higher in social standing. Well, okay, you know, I raise this girl to maturity and she's leaving me forever. So no one's going to take care of me in old age. But a compensating factor is, is that I have better placed relatives now who are going to help look after me, 
You know what I mean? And there was a little bit of a compensation there. But you can imagine that if the if if other elements got into play, uh, there could be a, a harder bargaining, right? And I think the other elements came into play uh, with the one-child policy because if you suddenly set, start telling families they can only have one child, what happens when their first child is, you know, uh, their first child is a girl? Uh, well you know, kind of gulp, right? I don't get another. I don't get any son, which means my family will be extinct. So this created a problem. And what it did, because this was also an era increasingly of amniocentesis and all kinds of other technologies for determining the sex of the, uh, of the, of the uh, you know, to be, to be baby coming along, it led to a lot of child abandonment. It led to infanticide. It led to various reasons of terminating pregnancies. And we know that because in patrilocal societies have tended historically to have a somewhat higher rate of males to females in other societies. It, this is getting kind of technical, uh, Ami, but if you look in nature um, about um, uh, you know, 105 or 106 sons are born to every 100 girls, right? That's, that's the natural ratio. It's kind of interesting that it's favored in, you know, that, that sons are favored by nature. And I think the reason is, is that boys are just a little bit more, you know, spread out in terms of outcome. You know, a lot of them will just go kill themselves. They're more accident prone and, <laughs> you know, about boys, right? And they're just all over the place. Um, and they're, they're sort of more spread out on the bell curve than girls. So I think nature just already designed a bunch of boys in there to be, you know, a little bit that, uh, that, it, that it can be disposed of by, by, by um, just events. But anyway, in, in China, typically, we, we routinely saw ratios of more like 108, 109. And in this recent period, we're seeing ratios of of 114, 115, 116. And this reached a peak uh, uh, in, in uh, 2005. Um, and these that peak has yet to reach marriage age, right? I mean, people are marrying in China in the late 20s, very beginning of the 30s today, much, much later than they did historically. Of course, ch child rearing too is, is later. But if you consider the late 20s, we're talking about maybe the late 2012, maybe we're really talking about the early 2030s when this is going to peak. Now, why do I raise this? Because already the sex imbalance at marriage age has become a huge social problem in China. And it's led to, well, what happens when you have more marriageable men than marriageable women? Well, a market develops, right? And what used to be a purely symbolic uh, payment, which was a bride payment, has now become hugely bigger than before. Um, you know, and this is uh, enormous shares of the groom's income are now going to purchasing daughters-in-law. Well, why is this happening? Because there's an imbalance of supply and demand. There haven't been enough girls produced in this society, right? And who is left behind most? Low-status, low-income, rural young men, right? They're the ones who are left behind because, that you know, remember, I said all girls want to marry up. Well, there's 
Who's there to marry up if you're a low status rural male? Um, so these are the ones that are paying enormous. And somehow the parents are getting, we're seeing, you can imagine in rural areas now in China, we're seeing um, payments of the equivalent of, of $50,000 for a rural family. I mean, that's just a huge fortune. That's many, many times annual wages, right? Um, anyway, this has become a little bit of a restiveness, particularly in rural areas about this. Now, these rural areas themselves are areas of very low fertility rates. So the fertility rate in these provinces, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Manchuria, you know, the old industrial areas and some of the places, you know, further out in the West, we're, we're seeing fertility rates of down near 1.0. So the very low fertility rate areas and um, uh, and uh, a lot of young men destined not to marry. Now they do have brides coming in from even poorer nations, uh, Cambodia, uh, uh, Burma, uh, but but it, it's a it's a very you know it's a, it's a, it's a terrible business as you can imagine. This is often forced. You know the the girls have no voluntary say in it. It's it's getting close to sort of a, a slave trade almost. And it's and it's not enough a number to to fill to fill the the, um, the the shortfall. So ultimately, China is dealing with this. They have large campaigns asking, you know, uh, of, of families with daughters, please don't ask for high bribe. But the problem is, they're giving no alternative way of allocating them. You have a game of musical chairs, and there's this enormous imbalance. There's just not enough chairs when everyone sits down. And if you don't have a price system, what do you have, right? Um, this is becoming a problem. And the reason why I said it's not going to peak for newlyweds until the late 2020s, early 2030s is to suggest this is going to get worse over the next decade, not better. This is an additional problem, by the way. And you know, we could have spent our time too talking about how they're going to reverse the fertility problem, but this is sort of an added issue, right? An imbalance of, of, of males versus females. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction, long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Felix, do you want to throw one in? Uh, hey, Neil, actually my question is, not about China, but curious to hear your perspective outside of China in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea. What's interesting to you in those markets? And then also have COVID uh, the last few years um, really impacted those markets as well? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the thing you hear most recently, just given how things geopolitically are heating up, is that uh, Southeast Asia is very well located for people who want to resource. Right? If you don't want, if 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 you don't think China can be depended on, where else are you going to go? 
Well, um, you know, you got Vietnam right there. You got Thailand. You got all these other places, right? And sometimes they they're already somewhat familiar with with the business going on, and there's already some lo- relocation that's happened. All you didn't need to do is scale it up. So I think that's actually positive <coughs> for them. <clears throat> also, some of these countries are demographically in a better situation. Uh, their fertility rate has not experienced uh, this this kind of uh, just uh, off the cliff drop off that's happened in China, you know, over the last 10 years. And I, I would say it's probably not actually that rapid a drop, but it's what the, what the data are now revealing. It's what's now been, been, been public. Um, and there, there are also reasons why China's upcoming deficit in births is going to cause a great deal of alarm. And I think it's actually going to, it may even push public policy and it may push China's national choices over the next decade. The reason why I say the birth numbers are going to be so dark in China is that it's not just falling total fertility rate. You've also got a wave phenomenon going on. The, um, I mean, unfortunately, even the drop off in births we're seeing is coming from an actual uh, 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 an actual wave of, of extra, you know, a, a wave of, of people that were that are now in their late 20s, early 30s that are having children. This next group of people, this is sort of the, the post-dang wave uh, boom. This is sort of the post-dang, you know, baby bust is now will, will, will by the late 2020s be moving into those, you know, mid and late 20s age brackets. And it's much smaller. I mean, we're saying that it's about a 30% collapse in the number of people of marriageable and, and childbearing age um, uh, by the late 2020s. So you, you really are going to see a steep fall off in, in birth numbers. And by the way, that's baked into those UN projections. So if you want to understand why those UN projections seem like they're dropping so much, the other countries in, in Southeast Asia don't really face that problem. Now, many of them, the high-income countries, you mentioned uh, South Korea and, and, and Taiwan and Japan and Singapore and so on, to some extent, Malaysia, they, they, are, they are higher income too, and they also have very low fertility rates. But of course, they've had low fertility rates for a long time. I should mention as an exception, South Korea, which is you know, totally off the charts. I mean, South Korea has the lowest fertility rate in the world. I mean, they're, uh, they're down at one, you know, they're down at 0.87. Um, I, I never thought I would see a country with a fertility rate that low. So this is to some extent a problem with all of the Confucian countries, almost regardless of income level, um, you know, as, as, as the old saying goes, China is a society that's going to get old before it gets rich. At least these other societies got rich first. But, but in terms of differential competition, um, the, 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 the overall uh, working age population growth scenario for the next couple of decades looks more robust and positive for the other Southeast Asian economies. And, um, and I think more, more importantly and more immediately 
I think it looks, uh, for, for geopolitical reasons, to be a much safer place to invest in for a, for a lot of high-income countries, and in particularly a better place to, to source their you know, assembly or supply or whatever they're getting uh, from there. Oh, you, you asked about COVID as well, and maybe I should just say um, Asia did very well in COVID era, and the, the reasons for that are still being investigated. Um, I think one, one interesting theory is that Asia tends to be a tight culture, uh, meaning that people, um, you know, don't know how to say it, but this is not a culture of a lot of hugs, you know, <laughs> people tend to be a little formal and a little tend to be a little bit more ritualistic in how they interact with one another. This is something that a, a sociologist, um, uh, Gelfond, I can't remember her first name, but she, she wrote a book on, on tight and loose cultures around the world. And she's talked a lot about this. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the, uh, the historical prevalence of infectious diseases and, and, and parasite diseases has actually explained a lot of the reasons why some cultures become looser and others tighter in how they interact with each other uh, socially. Um, also, I should just say, I mean, this is more most famously seen in Japan, which tends to be, I think everyone realizes, a somewhat formal culture. And, um, uh, you know, people sort of standing apart from each other and talking and uh, uh, we're, we're very early. In fact, they did so in the earlier uh, SARS epidemics were, were, have been much earlier to adopt face mask wearing, and that didn't seem to cause any kind of problem in, in, in much of Asia. And as a result, their infection rate was simply uh, much lower, uh, where it's hard to imagine many other things explaining that. Um, uh, uh, a, a, a cold and dry climate, uh, particularly in the winter, particularly in Japan. I mean, and, and and certainly an aging population, they should have been a prime target. You know, they, I mean, all the all the indicators otherwise would have said, "My gosh, this is a." They they should have had a pretty high mortality rate, but they did not. All right, hey Neil, this is Andrew. I'm gonna yeah. uh, jump in here with a question, and I think we might switch gears a little bit. Um, so I hope you don't mind. Um, but uh, I don't think we could get away with having you on this podcast and not talk about uh, AI. And, you know, in, in the past, Neil, you and I have had webcasts where we've spoken about the metaverse. And that was, you know, so 2021. Um, <clears throat> but it's 2023. And, you know, AI has kind of gone into mainstream, uh, whether it's having, you know, impacting in the short term uh, productivity, um, you know, labor is a big, is a big um, component of that, um, <clears throat> or just, you know, potential personal use cases. Uh, I, I'd love to just kind of get your take on how you see things unfolding. Um, you know, if you believe in it, in this AI wave and, you know, how you think about that as re it relates potentially to the fourth turning um, and, you know, how things can kind of unfold, you know, over the next, call it five years or so. Um, five to 10 years, even I'd love to just kind of pick your brain and get your open thoughts there. Well, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is, is, I, I think it's actually just a public confusion. I mean, AI itself has been underway now for a good, you know, a, a long while. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of us have been experimenting with, uh, the, these large neural network, uh, uh, you know, calculating machines for a long time and they've been used, 
in social science. They've been used in corporations. They've been used to track, you know, breakdown rates and error rates in big companies for a long time. They, they, they've already built a big head of steam, uh, even becoming very useful during COVID, right? At actually being able to diagnose and to be able to predict where most infections would occur and, and, and how to triage, you know, new patients coming in. Uh, AI, I mean, a good example of this is in radiology, where AI is, in, in, in other words, this is before this recent furor. AI, simply meaning the use of artificial intelligence to take huge amounts of standardized data in which you have a lot of different iterations of a standard problem. And you're looking for, you know, and you can, you can compare all of that data against very near-term results is something that was already well underway before suddenly people discovered it. And I think what people discovered is not AI because that remained invisible to them, but rather these, these large language models, right? Um, uh, the, you know, generative pre, pre-trained transformers, right? The, the, the chat GPT uh, uh, three and four now, um, and I think that's that's the public face of it that amazes everyone because it seems so human-like. So it's this very little corner of AI that I think has come to everyone's attention, and it seems transformative. Um, uh, I regard this as um, as as a I'll, I'll say honestly, and I say this as someone who actually subscribes to Chat GPT. Uh, for, uh, you know, and I use it. Uh, I think it's really interesting and I love seeing how it works. Uh, but to me, it's a, it's the next version of Google. It's a different way of scanning and screening and, and uh, kind of transforming or, or uh, uh, restructuring information on the web uh, to answer a particular question you have. It's 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 a it's a it's the next generation version of Google or of uh, Wikipedia, which is how I see it. It's how I use it. One thing it is not though, it is not good at solving problems or coming up with creative solutions. The very design of this is designed to take everything that's out there and give you sort of the median view of what everyone else thinks about the issue. That's how you use it. That can be very useful, but it's not, how should I say this? People think of it as like this person out there that's coming up with new things. It doesn't understand anything about what it's talking about. It's just filling in the next word according to everything else that's written out there on the web. And you, know, you may think that's amazing, and I guess it is, but it's not fundamentally creative. And um, I... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I think it's, a lot, it's just all about accessibility, right? I mean, you're, it's all about what? Accessibility. Um, totally. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's, you know it's, it's the killer app, right? I mean, and Ami, I'd love to, you know, if you have any comments on this or thoughts on this too, like, you know, like the mainframe computer, right? Like the personal computer, you know, it was, it, you know, it, be, the, it became affordable. Like people could access it. You get, you get network effects, you get broader adoption, um, you know, costs come down and then, you know, you kind of accelerate up on, on the curve in many ways. So, you know, it, I guess it is like, I would agree with you entirely. It is one of those things where, 
you know, even at Hedgeye, you know, we've experimented with, you know, I can't like, hey, like reaching out to the operations team. Hey, we need more data, uh, you know, server capacity because we're running this, you know, iterative model, right? Um, that's running these large correlations. I'm trying to solve problems. Um, you know, the language component, you know, is efficient in the sense, to your point, Neil, where if instead of having to do, you know, multiple Google search queries over and over and over again and reading a bunch of different articles and kind of going through that process manually to the extent that you could have, you know, a machine do it or an algorithm do it um, <clears throat> and do it just as e equally, if not more efficiently, at least to the, compared to the average person, then, you know, you get a productivity boost. I guess like maybe a bigger picture, you know, beyond just what it is today, right? Like, do you have any thoughts on, you know, longer term, um, what it can mean and how it could, you know, impact, you know, how we interact with technology or how technology interacts with us or, you know, how, how the tech, you know, from an ethics standpoint, obviously there's a lot of people that are concerned with, you know, what, I, what AI can mean. Um, it's all over social media, whether these are real use cases or not, right? Um, but, you know, like if you tell, you know, if you're telling, um, there was some article and, and, and shame on me for not, I'm going to bring this up just because I saw it. I didn't take the time to vet the resource, but it was basically like some, there's a military um, blog that talked about how it trained um, a, uh, it, it trained a, uh, a drone to do a military, to strike, uh, you know, to, to strike a target. Um, <clears throat> and then it tried to override the target. Um, but the, the AI, the tool is that said, you know, you have to complete the mission. And so it viewed the person who was controlling the drone, right, giving that command to stop the operation as a threat impeding the mission. So then it would turn around and actually strike the person that was giving it the command because it still wanted to complete the mission. Now, obviously, that I'm bringing that up because it just it came up. It went viral. Again, shame on me. I don't I can't verify the legitimacy of that either way. Right, but it does bring up an interesting potential hypothesis, like use case, or an ethics problem. Um, and I'm curious if you have any views, you know, on that longer term. Well, look, uh, but again, this this was always a this has always been a, an issue, a potential issue in AI. I should say, badly designed AI, right? Uh, that uh, and the, the I think the 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 classic case was always said. You know, you develop uh, some machine that's programmed by AI to produce paper clips. And so all it does is pretty, and pretty soon it's, it's, you know, devouring people and devouring everything. So the entire world at the end of time is filled with huge stacks of paper clips. And finally the machine comes to an end when everything has changed into paper clips and <laughs> humanity has vanished. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that is this, you know, you, you would have to almost, suicidally program everything to, to fulfill that. And, and again, this is, this has been there. This has been there all along. I guess one of the things I'm doing is differentiating between AI as a trend and these, these large um, language models, which, you know what I mean? Because that's really what's, yep. what's, and I think large language models are actually pretty benign from that point of view. Right. Um, 
But the idea of using AI in its more classical form, you know, big neural networks actually look at all the data coming in in a missile and then figuring out it itself, you know, what's the best target and so on, how to coordinate with all the other missiles. You can imagine pilotless planes and a swarm, how they would use this. I mean, it's, it is pretty frightening. It is pretty dramatic what they could do. And actually, one, one interesting angle for me in, in terms of geopolitics is uh, an old lesson from history, right? And that is, is that big jumps in technology are always an advantage to new contenders geopolitically, right? Because what it does is it renders all of the, um, all of the legacy investment by the hegemon, right, by the, by the incumbent, suddenly valueless, or at least valued less, right? Um, you build a whole bunch of battleships, right? And then someone invents uh, torpedo planes, right? And then what happens to the value of all the battleships? I mean, you can go back and just look at, at these revolutions in the past. And I do think that inevitably, although we'd like to think ourselves, you know, the United States and America having very strong advantage in AI, I do caution that the lesson of history is, is that a brand new technology or technological approach generally empowers a newcomer because after all, suddenly it means, sure, you may be pretty good at it, uh, but everything that you have invested up into until now suddenly becomes much less valuable. We've already seen that. I mean, whoever talks about putting carriers you know, into the South China Sea, you know, with, with the advent of the, uh, the very smart anti-ship missiles, right? They're vastly cheaper to produce. So new technology always renders the incumbent less powerful. And that, that is something that uh, national security people are definitely talking about. Got it. Ami, do, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, you know, I've always appreciated your big picture thinking when it comes to tech and cycles and product. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously up for debate and no one really knows, but it's an interesting thought experiment. But I, I, um, let me just let me just say here, uh, 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 Andrew, is that, that the one thing I often tell people who are so amazed by these large language models and, and the kind of the, you know, chat GPT and, and, and all that they can do is if you if you tell them to multiply one large number times another, they can't do it. You know, they, they actually give the wrong answer. And, and you think, wow, they can't even do that. You know, my little calculator can do that. And it, <laughs> and it, and it kind of tells you what they're not designed to do, right? They have no idea what they're saying. It's just so long as it's plausible, right? Um, and oh, I yeah. think I mean, you def- yeah, you definitely have to, you, you definitely have to sanity check it. I mean, it gives incorrect information. Um, you know, so I guess, right. and then, but it's what it's designed to do is, is give you something that sounds really good. And that's actually <laughs> is what it's programmed yeah. to do. Oh, so it yeah. is. I mean, it writes better than I do. I swear. Um, which is which probably, which, which probably says more things about me than it, frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just the killer app component of it. And, you know, there's obviously a hype component to it. Um, but no, you, do, it you also, do wonder, right? Like, yeah, go ahead. Well, I will say this too, in, in using these these uh, these these large language model apps, is that is that the strength of your answer depends. And by the way, this is actually very much like Google. The strength of your answer depends hugely on what question you ask. If you can't ask a really good question, you're not going to get a very interesting answer. 
No, that's so uh, true. The, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think again, it's sort of, if you have to start out with someone who's creative, I, I, I will say this. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if you're a wedding planner and, you know, you, you, I, this has been often cited as an example and, you know, you draw these big illustrations, someone tells you, well, I want, I want a wedding, you know, that's, uh, that's on the beach in Hawaii, but it has like theme of King Arthur with a little bit of Tolkien thrown in. Um, so, you know, you know, paint, paint an idea, a picture of my, of my wedding, right? Believe it or not, these, there are people you could hire to actually do this. Well, now, of course, you can have, uh, um, you're going to have Dolly, you know, Dolly two or three or one of these things do it for you. And so kind of low creativity task where people are just simply responding to something to do something that's plausible uh, or to summarize what's known is absolutely will drive people whose living is derived from actually doing that. Uh, will drive them out of business. I think. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I well, but, but. But if you're if if what you do is really creative, you know, coming up with new things on the basis of what everyone else knows, I think you're safe. And what I often tell people is if, if your entire life, I even tell this to radiologists, I mean, if your entire life is doing something that a machine can do better than you, aren't you kind of happy that, you know, let's face it, you don't want to spend your rest of your life doing that. Go on and do something, find something that requires you know, more depth, right? Um, so, so Neil, so Neil, I got a question for you, and I, yeah. I swear this is relevant. So, it, can you think of a Anami too? If you, if you, both of you, uh, like, so has there ever been like, is there a movie that comes to mind, whether old or recent, where it came out and you were and they casted a certain actor in it or an actress, and you were just like, oh, you know, I just, I really wish that they casted this person instead of that person in that role. Like, have you ever had that like situation before? Oh, almost always. Every time they do a remake of an old movie. <laughs> so, so imagine, right? Imagine with like generative AI, like, like you could, as the as as Neil Howe, could sit there and maybe you could choose, right? You could substitute the individual who's playing a certain role, um, you know, using you know this technology. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are use cases like that today. We're obviously not <laughs> there yet from a consumer standpoint where, you know, for a Netflix, you could just go and you could swap characters out, but, um, it would be, you know, pretty remarkable from a creative standpoint, like if that ever gets to scale, cause there are people working on that, you know, problem. It's, today. it's already then, done. Then, I mean, Br Bruce Willis has sold his, uh, you know, likeness to, to uh, Russian advertisers, you know, he's a huge hit in Russia, right? So they, they have all kinds of vodka ads and all kinds of things over Russia. He, he has no idea what the ads are. They just simply use his image and they use his speech and, and they- Yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you're just like licensing yourself out. But I mean, from a, I just bring it up because it's interesting, like what's going on with like the WGA and the writer's strike. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a really, it's just, it's really interesting. And then if you think about- But look- content, Yeah. But, but Andrew, if they, if, if sure, if they want to use my voice, fine. But if, but if, 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 if what I say is, is, is cogent and interesting as, as me myself, then I'm in the wrong business. You know what I mean? Oh, it's like, I, know, look, I, I should I change totally... my business. I will say that the real reason why I don't like some of these remakes is they've taken all the interesting um, verbal play 
And all of what was interesting from a sort of a language perspective in these movies and completely drained everything interesting. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they've, they've turned them into uh, beautiful sort of action adventures, uh, but it, have taken all the sort of intelligent verbal interaction out of these old movies. Yeah. Now, yeah, that yeah. isn't a problem with AI. That's a problem with the changing audience, right? Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, The Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data-driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Yeah, I think the creative component, like I agree, like, look, you never, it, what, what it does is it will free, like the people, the create, the creators, right? Like the unique thinkers like yourself um, or the talent, but hopefully like what this does is it, you know, frees up time and improves efficiency where there, you can allocate more of that person can allocate more time to more high value tasks. Right. So, totally. you know, if you could do that, then, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, your creativity, you know, is exponential. The output increases because you're no longer spending 70%, 50% of your time doing these monotonous things that are just not really valuable, but you have to do them. But now they can be just automated or you could use AI as a tool. And then all of a sudden you have 30% more time to go do what you're best at doing. And then you can throw that into the mix and then it's like everything else. You come out and hopefully have something better at the end of the day. From but it. this is this is just one more stage in the story of technology. I remember publishing books earlier in my life where I would uh, I would put the manuscript in by hand, and the copy editors would go over it by hand and give me back a hand copy. You know, everything was done by hand. I, I couldn't go in there and and search through text. It, it was extremely laborious and stupid, right? And I had to do all that. I, I've been liberated now. You know, you do a book now and it's all done digitally. Um, I can't tell you how wonderful that is. Uh, uh, but, but you know, Edward Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire with a, with a quill and a pen. You know, <laughs> he had to dip <laughs> his quill and he had those long Ciceronian sentences of, you know, 75 words of unbelievably lucid, balanced prose and uh, he did it. He didn't just push words around on his screen, right? He actually thought of that in his head, and then he wrote the whole sentence. Now, it's interesting too. And this was, by the way, this goes back to to Plato, who, as 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 you may know, right? He, he never wrote any. Uh, excuse me, Socrates, who never wrote anything. Plato wrote wrote it all down. And 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 Socrates actually says in his dialogues, he thinks writing is a big mistake. He said it actually takes away from people their powers of memory and imagination to bring that to life in their own mind rather than look at a Man. piece of paper. I, but do you understand what I'm saying? Like this is like this is an old debate, right? This yeah. is an old problem. Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. It's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how everything kind of 
how it pans out. But you're right. But you know, you're right. I mean, you look. Oftentimes, you can just look at the history and kind of inform the the future. Um, Ami, I, I want to give you an opportunity to throw it back to you. Um, if you have anything to add or any questions specifically. Yeah, Neil. Just on this one subject. Um, I don't know if I'll have time to get back to my other demography questions, but just on this one subject, now that we've got AI in front of us, um, the, your, your, your focus on LLMs, it, it brings up some other thoughts for me, um, which is that a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the last year is, is kind of, I guess what you could call maybe like the natural language processing part of the story. Yes. And that all, almost makes me think about where we are. And, and, and even this piece of innovation, I agree hundred percent with what you said before, this piece of the innovation, this, this, where, well, this moment that we're in is very immature. Like these, this, this product, you know, GPT is very, very, very immature um, and inconsistent and so on and so forth and has raises other problems about copyright and so on and so forth. However, if, if I'm thinking about this, right, maybe, maybe this moment in time where we are, where we, we're beginning to be is what, what this is what this type of GPT type of investment or innovation is, is a translation machine between humans and computers so that we have a better access for utilization of our computing infrastructure that is available to us today. And I think that's it's almost um, one of these things that you could almost think about like Siri on steroids uh, or on, on mega steroids or on exascale steroids, that if we can get the most out of the software and the hardware to the extent that we can even say, okay, let's code in missing pieces that we need in order to fulfill the demand that we have that computers and humans start to understand each other. Well, we don't actually need to understand them. It, this, this is, it would be a one-way translation from us to them uh, and them to output. Um, in a sense, to me, that would be like exceedingly bullish because for technology, because it just means that that this is going to unlock the next massive wave of utilization of computing assets. Um, anyway, I want to, based on what you were saying, this is the thought process that I generate uh, back at you. So, what do you think about that? Well, it's it's really interesting, and I, I think you're right uh, to be able to to. Interface better with these enormous machines that are so powerful. Um, it will also lead inevitably to certain kinds of disappointment. Um, and let's let's face it too. We haven't talked at all about the dangers of this, right? Um, you know, we we talked about uh, you know being able to fake my voice and my image and so on. But let's talk about deep fakes, right? Uh, what is the what are the political implications of that? What are the geopolitical implications of being able to fake anything, right, to make it appear absolutely genuine? Um, that malleability, this great power, right, to be able to tell a computer to sort of do your will, and 
create a simulacrum of anything, a plausible simulacrum of anything, is um, is an enormous and power for good and for ill, as as you can imagine. And I and I do think it will have. I think do think will have repercussions. I do think it will bring back the government into. Uh, the regulation of communication and information technologies. I think we we're already seeing that trend, uh, certainly with some support on both sides of the political aisle. And I, I think that will continue. Um, the look, we we haven't even talked about regulation of all these new technologies. Uh, I mean, that maybe that's the one thing maybe we should talk about for a little bit. Uh, but certainly, your vision is is a is a is a good one. I would just simply say, what's the purpose of your interfacing more effectively with these machines? What are you trying to accomplish exactly? Right. And, and I think there, I, I say that because it's, it's, I'm following off a little bit in, in what I said earlier, when it's no good even having chat GPT three, if you can't, if you don't even know the question to ask, and you don't really know how to interpret the result. It's not going to think for you. You know what I mean? It's a tool. If you if you use it like a tool, and you see yourself as a fundamentally creative agent using a tool, you're you're on safe ground. If you begin to look at this device as something that's going to do all my work for me somehow, um, I think you're going off the deep end. That's fair. That's fair. But I think that every, every inch that the door of technology opens, and in this case, perhaps it's just this, there's, it's not going to do all my work, but it's going to do, you know, it's going to do more of my work. Um, will enable me to do more work. So exactly. You'll yeah, be working so, just as hard. You'll just be yeah. working on other things. Yeah, exactly. this isn't. Yeah. I mean, this is I'm not unreal. I mean, I'm not on. You know, this, there's no paradise here for me. You know, <laughs> this is just more work. But but it's also more interesting. There's more interesting things that can also be done and can be done faster. And the more every, what we've seen is that every inch of technology, every step that opens up greater utilization of technology does tend to lead to quite a boom of investment. You know, I, I, I do agree with you, Amy, but I just push back a little bit on this because, sure. you know, I've noticed people writing about history today um, and there are a number of books. I mean, I won't mention them, but they write about history. You know, they write about, you know, the Persians or the Romans or the, you know, the, the, past Chinese empires, they will, talk, they will talk about various things. And I do get the sense as I read a lot of these books, I do get the sense that these people have never actually, they've never, they've never actually read much. They've never read a history book. They've never actually read anything, you know, in, in, much less Latin. They've never even read a, a, like a translation of Caesar. They've never really read Polybius. They've ne they don't know anything about the Punic Wars, although they claim to know what Hannibal did. And I get the impression now that a lot of people know everything about history from just sort of Googling stuff. I, I don't mean to put this down, but you understand what I'm getting at? They have no feel for the events. They have no feel for the culture of the people who actually did these things. 
I get the sense of, of, um, of, of kind of a created knowledge almost as though it's a, a computerized simulacrum of someone who knows, but they don't really know. Do, do you understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, yeah. I, I think you've you've all we all know situations where we where we're really intimately associated with something. I don't know what it is. Maybe we're we're into plumbing. Maybe we're into actually building fine furniture out of wood. And you always know the difference between you who have done it with your hands. You know what it feels like. You've actually bought the materials. You've you faced failure with them. And then hearing someone else talk about it who obviously doesn't have that experience, but he sounds like he's, he does. Do, do you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. It's like somebody who read the Wikipedia summary of the book instead of reading the book. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Thank you. And, and I think that is a little bit the problem I have with chat GPT three. It's great as a tool, but once you begin to just rely on it routinely, and and I and I you know I don't want to make this generational here, but but I do know. Um, you know I look at I look at the history curriculum now. This I mean I am an historian probably before anything else, and I look at the history curriculum. And I was amazed at at how even at the college level they don't really read many books anymore. You know they just sort of uh, they do a lot of their research on you know a lot of these a lot of these article sites. They go in and they they sort of pick and choose uh, something that but they but they're not. They don't, they don't have a lot of grounding and it, it, it makes me worry. But then again, maybe I'm just, um, you know, a classic old fashioned kind of person, but, but I do, I do think about that. I do think about what we've lost sometimes by not actually going through the labor of actually fishing through those enormous tomes. You know, if you haven't read Gibbon, you know, you're sitting there at six volumes now, now, given today, obviously, doesn't represent the cutting edge of research on, on, on the history of Rome, for example. But the experience of going through a volume like that, just to give you an example, is changes you, right? It gives you some depth and appreciation of, of what's going on there. Um, and and if it, not just at the events themselves, but one person's attempt to sort of... Um, to, to wrap his mind around it all. Anyway, there is something that I occasionally think is lost. We, we, we streamline the knowledge, which is great. But if you've never had the opportunity to really have to struggle through it yourself, you, you've lost something as well. I completely agree. I uh, intentionally took... Uh, Moby Dick out of my high school curriculum and read it uh, one chapter at a time, very slowly my God. And, and meditating yeah. and meditating on chapter by chapter. I, it's still it's 20 over 20 years later. It, it's still read 25 years over 25 years later. It still resonates. You probably uh, know yeah. a lot more about the biology of whales, right? Than most people. So, well, one of the, actually one of the chapters that stands out the most is um, all about how people tie knots, but we can talk about that uh, another time. <laughs> it, it, no, I'm serious. He, he tied, um, he explained the different ways people tie knots on, on ships. And at first you're like, why, why do I have to read this? And then he, it, as it unfolds, you realize 
he's explaining different approaches to theology and it's, it's mind shattering. Um, so anyway, one of those, the benefits of doing something slowly and thoroughly, I completely agree, but I think totally. increasing, increasingly we're in a world of metadata as opposed to people knowing something, people are, have to know the cliff notes and not even the cliff notes, but the summary of the cliff notes. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and that's, that's, I'm just saying there's a trade-off instead of thinking of it as progress, always to get all the stuff behind you and then always work up to the meta level. You have to be aware that, yes, that's nice, but there's a trade-off. You lose something too. And then ultimately, when you're up at this very high meta level and you sound like you know everything, to some extent, you may know nothing. That's right. right. That's right. And a lot of today's analytics are increasingly based on metadata. So the question is, now metadata doesn't mean the way you and I are exactly referring to this. It's pointers towards the data and analytics being run super fast because you can make reference to something that points towards the data as opposed to calling up all the data in in search or or analytics. Oh, by the way, by the way, this this reminds me a very interesting point about how, um, and I think we've talked about this in the past, Ami, but just as the rise of Google and uh, has to some extent caused media, the 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 whole enterprise of, of of media organizations to atrophy, right? I mean. Right, you're going to go to the Google first, and only indirectly go to you know the New York Times or the Christian Science Monitor, or what you know. Talk about all these, you know, some of these St. Louis Post Dispatch. Some of these people no longer with us, but that's my point: is that now Google actually has a budget for actually subsidizing these news media machines because they suddenly realize that if everyone just accesses everything through Google. I mean, in some ways, Google is parasitical on the news organizations that actually did the hard work and pounded the, you know, with the shoe leather of actually going out and creating these stories. Well, who's going to pay, right, the ad revenue of the of these story creators? And and I think that that and we have seen an enormous atrophy in news media, particularly in local uh, news, which is tragic. But even even in national news, I mean, the, the Washington Post is a shadow of what it once was, right? Um, partly because of its current owner. But you understand what I mean. We, we've seen an atrophy in the actual news business because people are going through it more at a meta level because of Google. Well, I'm asking a, a, a next level question was once everyone's going into, um, you know, large language model, they're going in through, you know, chat. Now, GPT, you know, 15, right? Maybe 15 years from now, who's going to be putting up anything on the web anymore? Right. Because after all, you're just going to be asking chat. Well, so who's going to, you know, you know what I mean? It's parasitical on all these people who are carefully putting things there. So in some ways, it's parasitical on the people who are already doing the hard work. Um, And so who's going to be doing that? I mean, it's it's interesting to think about, right? I mean, if everyone is working on the meta level, well, who's going to organize information on the original level anymore? And how are you going to, you know, what's going to happen to that? It might turn the model inside out though, Neil. Like meaning like today we go to Google to go find stuff. Um, but if, but in the model you're describing, 
chat GPT or GPT or GPT 520, whatever it is, becomes more about um, the act of all of us in our individual spots going into this technology to go seek what we want to seek. What we end up finding is what is everybody seeking? And we end up having, in some cases, that's automation uh, because it, is ready for us and created for us faster. That, that sounds like the ultimate dystopia, doesn't it? Um, I mean, no one's doing anything anymore, but everyone's like looking at everyone else trying to, you know. I don't know. It's people. what the internet is just one step Matrix. further. It's the internet one step further, I think. Well, but the point is, is if, remember, chat GPT is only aggregating all of the hard work that's already out there, right? And if no one else is doing that work, what are they going to be aggregating anymore? Well, well, I'm not sure. It's also sharing meeting notes from internal Samsung meetings because the Samsung people decided that they needed summaries and they put their meeting notes in there and GPT decided to make those available to everybody. So um, there's... uh, that's 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 what I was thinking is the is the mirror effect of the technology reach um, that more and more of what we need and what we're looking for to GPT will be immediately available to us and well, turned you, around. You, as by the way, you, you bet you've just raised a whole nother problem with the GPT paradigm. Yeah. Right. And that yeah. is, is that artificially I can warp everyone else's perception by putting out something on some source deliberately to influence the the chat GPT summary, right? This has already been discussed, by the way, in the media, in the tech media. So in other words, if if I know something about some strange little corner of the world, I can deliberately load a lot of stuff that I know that's not true, just so I know that chat GPT will pick that up because no one else knows anything about it. And that's what everyone else will think. I mean, this is the problem that we're, we're getting to because, and no one else will know what to think because no one else will be expert in it anymore because everyone will be relying on chat GPT. It's a generational problem. Um, I wonder if it will influence um, um, fertility rates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, I don't, I don't know. Just wanted to tie the end into the beginning. Um, yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. Bringing bring it all together. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Neil, um, for those listening, Neil's next book, The Fourth Turning is Here, will be available on July 18th. You can pre-order it now, um, uh, but it will not be available until the 8th, not ship until the 18th of July. Neil, thank you very much for being with us today. This was an incredible session of Unscripted Equity Curiosity, Season 3, Episode 12. Uh, We really appreciate it. We hope to have you back on sometime again soon. Thank you, Ami. It's great to be here. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
Hedgehead is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgehead subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.